Since we first recorded this live episode of Corner Office Breakdowns at Advertising Week, the world has just continued to get worse and worse and worse. And before we get into the conversation that I had with the incredible Jessica Gross, I just want to acknowledge that many of us um, are in a deeply painful space right now. When I think about my version of resistance, yes, it comes from calling my Congress people. Yes, it comes from elevating uh, voices who are authentic and who can speak firsthand about their experiences. And also, I believe my version of resistance is a resistance of how leadership and corporate America and professionalism have come to life over the last many, many decades and helping to envision and reimagine and sort of reinstate a new form of leadership in the world. I think it is my mission as, you know, cheesy or hippy dippy or idealistic as it sounds to ultimately help get more conscious, awakened, humanitarian, empathetic, emotionally equipped people into positions of leadership. In some conversations, that means mothers or parents. In others, it means people who have experienced oppression and have found ways to overcome and succeed and, you know, incorporate a goodness for humanity in what they do. Regardless of the form, the way our countries and our world and our very, very lucrative businesses are being run right now is not it. This is not it. There is a different way. There is a different world. And we need to create it. So the conversation that I had with Jessica Gross, who is a New York Times opinion writer and the author of Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood, really started by examining the role work plays in our life right now. We talk about this topic of greedy jobs and this catchphrase of the ideal worker as someone who pours everything into their job and seems as if they have no responsibilities outside of their role at work. What the conversation gets to, however, is the importance of cohorts of people rallying for and standing up for change. How it's not enough for us to talk about how the secondary parent, for instance, needs to take parental leave we need to actually see men in leadership positions across industries 
do it themselves and take it upon themselves to set that example. We also talk about the importance of extreme honesty in times like this. We do not need to be going around pretending to have a doctor's appointment or pretending that, you know, our babysitter called out or we have to take the dog to the vet. We should be saying point blank, I cannot work today because there is a humanitarian crisis going on and I am in a deep state of mourning. I get businesses need to keep going. I get that, you know, the world spins madly on, as they say. But if we as individuals take a moment to stop, and enough of us do it, the world may have to stop for a second too. So that is the essence of this conversation. Jessica Gross is an incredible thinker. She is one of the most important thinkers of our time, in my opinion, when it comes to navigating parenthood and personhood and professionalism. And I am so grateful to her and the New York Times for uh, taking a chance on me and engaging in this very important conversation. I hope it resonates with you. I'm so curious to hear what you all think. If it is not the right time to listen to it, because there are plenty of other things that are requiring your attention and your emotion, I could not understand more. Save it, come back to it later. And until we speak again, I am sending as much love and kindness and hope for peace out into the world. Hi everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I could not be more excited to be in conversation with Jessica Gross. She is a New York Times opinion writer. She wrote this incredible book, Screaming on the Inside. Um, her coverage of parenthood during COVID was groundbreaking. Her research helped so many of us feel, you know, seen and heard and not alone. And she also spans so many topics from organized religion and how Americans are moving away from it to really thinking about um, equity and inequality across America. Um, and the conversation we want to have today in true corner office breakdowns um, nature is we have ambition, we just don't have time. And this conversation really centers two key concepts. Uh, the first concept is this idea of a greedy job. And this is a term that was popularized by uh, recent Nobel Prize winner, Claudia Golden. And what she speaks about when she talks about greedy jobs is really jobs that require everything of you. And she has 
for the most part, talked mostly about women in the workplace, but her, re her research does extend to men as well, um, and how greedy jobs are actually not allowing men to evolve their role in the home and in the family, so forth and so on. And then the second concept is this concept of the ideal worker. Uh, this is a term coined by legal and gender scholar uh, Joan Williams, and basically the ideal worker is someone who works as if work is their only responsibility. And we are all in an industry where we work a lot. Advertising is notorious for being a workhorse type of industry. Uh, we have all pulled our all-nighters. We have all worked weekends prepping for a pitch. Um, and so this is about taking these two topics and really trying to think how we can analyze them, dismantle them, and really focus on new ways of working as we move forward. So Jess. <laughs> Um, your work has covered both this concept of the ideal worker and this concept of greedy jobs. Um, and so one of the things I want to start by talking about with you is, you know, as we look at the most successful people in our industry, and this goes far beyond advertising, if we look at the most successful people in corporate America, many of them, if not most of them, have sort of succumbed to this idea of greedy jobs. They've let the jobs be greedy. Um, and they've sort of adopted this idea of um, being an ideal worker as a badge of honor. Um, they are proud of their hustle. They boast about how late they're working, how early they're working, all of the travel they have. And even if it pains them to talk about, like even if the internal experience of that isn't necessarily making them feel great, the way it's projected is that it is something to be put on a pedestal. Um, so my question is, from your research in this space, how did we get here? Um, so it's like, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> But um, I do think the division during the Industrial Revolution between the domestic sphere and the public sphere, and the domestic sphere as a space only for women, and the public sphere as a space only for men was really the beginning of it. Yeah. So, you know, obviously there are women, usually women of color, immigrants who always worked, but that's not what society valorized, that is not considered the ideal, somewhat even to this day. So. All of our systems were built out of the expectation that there would, would always be a woman at home mm -hmm. taking care of all of the domestic responsibility. Right. And even as women have flooded the workplace at all levels, um, you know, starting in the 70s and just increasing fairly exponentially until today, yeah. um, and it's plateaued in large part because we cannot get away from this idea that that it is still primarily a woman's job, a mother's job to um, manage all of these domestic responsibilities. And if they have a paid job outside the home, then, well, you're just putting that on top of it. And right, so, exactly. again, vast oversimplification, but that's pretty much how we got here. Yeah. And the role of kind of domestic labor was also never really realized as real labor, right? right? The work was seen as less than, it was never actually quantified. It was never part of the gross domestic product. Yeah. So there was a movement, you know, by some feminist economists and scholars, you know, in a couple decades ago to quantify it, make it part yes. of the GDP, and it just never took off. And Anne Crittenden, who wrote mm -hmm. um, a book called The Price of Motherhood that came out 20 so years ago, talks mm -hmm. about this at, at length. And yeah. so, you know, we just don't include it at all. 
Yeah. And I think the concept, why, why the idea of greedy jobs and the ideal worker resonated so much with me is because it feels impossible when, when you have to kind of compartmentalize your life and all of a sudden have more responsibilities than just your work. It almost starts to feel impossible to succeed. Yes. It feels like it's impossible to get to a certain place. You reach a plateau. You can't move beyond it. And if you were to move beyond it, you have to literally sit down and think, you know, um, what am I willing to sacrifice? Is it time with my children? Is it my relationship with my partner? Is it my sense of self? Is it my sanity? And so, you know, people talk about the motherhood penalty. But for me, it's far beyond that. It's not just about how much we get paid and how much um, value we seem to bring to the workforce. It's also about the, the pure load of everything that we take on. And again, to the title, you know, we have ambition, we just don't have time. Right. We, we all still want to do exceptional things in our careers. We want to be successful in a way that feels aligned with who we are, but it almost feels impossible to find a way to do that. Right. Um, and I think that the reason for it is we are accepting a bunch of assumptions that were baked into the workplace mm -hmm. um, that are simply untrue. And they've been yeah. proven to be untrue. So one, knowledge workers and their Microsoft actually was the one who commissioned this study of their own workers. Mm -hmm. um, knowledge workers, so general white collar workers with desk jobs, six hours a day mm -hmm. is the most that they can be truly productive. Mm -hmm. um, and so these long hours are really just for show. You are not yeah. doing better work. There are diminishing returns right. um, the, more, the longer hours you are working. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's not just like a theory that it's better right. to work more reasonable hours. It's actually been shown to be mm -hmm. true that you know, you're not going to be doing, I mean, I don't know about you, I'm not doing my ideal work at two in the morning. <laughs> No. Um, so I think that's one assumption. Mm -hmm. um, a second assumption was completely destroyed by the, na the horrible natural experiment that was COVID. Mm -hmm. So I think there was this idea that you can't work flexibly. You can't we can't change the way we've always done things because that will destroy everything. Yes. Well, guess what? Tons of people started working from home, different hours, and you know, over certainly there's some heterogeneous results, but overall we're shown to be just as, if not more, right. productive. Right. And the other thing that happened was uh, more babies were born mm -hmm. because people actually had time with their spouses, yes. um, and men were more involved with their children mm -hmm. who were working from home. Mm -hmm. And so those are two studies that have come out in the past couple years showing that like actually this did make a difference. And I think when we only talk about this as a you know a mother's problem as a women's problem, mm -hmm. um, we don't talk about what men are losing. Yeah. I mean, most men I know want to spend time with their children. Yes, they don't want to be working such long hours that they completely miss the you know really important moments of right. their kids growing up. Mm -hmm. So I think we're still sort of holding on to a lot of these assumptions about how we work. And I'm not suggesting that just throwing out all of our systems is mm -hmm. desirable or possible. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think many companies could take a look at the big picture and say, like, hey, there's a lot of things we are doing um, and rules that we have that are arbitrary, yeah. considering the technology we have in 2023, um, the set of workers that we have, what their skill sets are, how we can use these. So I, I think, you know, 
it's really a case-by-case -case basis, and a lot of it is just unwillingness mm -hmm. to do the work to reevaluate the people that you have working for you and the systems that you've set in place 40 years ago. Yeah, and I think, you know, in, in this industry in particular, we work on, you know, either retainer models or project models. And so basically what that means is you have a certain amount of money to deploy in the way that feels most fitting uh, for your organization. And I'm not sure about everybody in the audience, but for us, what that meant was leaner teams, leaner teams, leaner teams, leaner teams. Everybody's taking on more work. All of a sudden you go from being on one client to three clients. And so the actual operational model of a lot of client services-based companies is sort of intrinsically built on maxing out your people to then max out your profit. And so even you know, things like um, remote working and return to office, which we just talked about as a whole conversation in and of itself, but there is just so much more control <laughs> that can be um, put on a workforce if you can see them. And I remember at one point in my career, um, one of the CEOs I worked with was like, yeah, I like to have my people like right outside my office so I can be like, hey, Ambika. And I was like, so just like whenever you want, like on whatever whim, if I have headphones in, if I'm jamming on something, like it doesn't matter because I am needed. Um, and so I think, this industry, and most of us are this industry or adjacent here, so what are like overarching ways we need to think about loosening the hold jobs have over our lives? And I'm not talking about being like, F the system, like we're quitting, we're all gonna go be entrepreneurs. Like I need health insurance, y'all. Like I need health <laughs> insurance. I need to know I have money coming in for my children. Like that's life. Not all of us have the ability to just fully go off the grid and pursue something outside of systems. So if we look at how most of us work in kind of corporate or at least you know company-oriented environments, what what can we do to start to think about our jobs in a different way? Well, I mean, I think one of the first things I always recommend is like banding together with fellow employees because nothing is going to change until the people at the top agree to it yeah. or are enlightened. I think some of that will happen with time. I think when, you know, people of our generation become leaders, I do think yes. you, you see a different attitude towards the place of work in your life. So some of it is just, you know, with time will change. These are big changes the rate of technology is happening so fast. There's so much going on in the world. You know, it takes time. Yeah. Um, so I think there is always strength in numbers. Mm -hmm. So if there's a specific policy change you want, if there's a specific way of working that you think would benefit both the workers and the company, it really is so much more effective to have several people yeah. asking for it right. um, at the same time. So I do think, you know, yes. that's one way. In terms of, you know, it's hard to give blanket advice because every industry and every company mm -hmm. is so different and you know what boundaries you can erect that will be respected and not get you in trouble because yeah. I'm never trying to get anybody out here fired. Like that's, um, <laughs> I sometimes feel like work advice is just like, you know, do what you want. Yeah, exactly. That's that boundary. And it's like, I can't say I'm not answering email at yeah. 6 p.m. Yeah. Like, I'd love to do that. But, you know, I, I think... We yes. all need to be mindful and we all know our own companies best and what is going to work. Yeah. But I think, you know, 
again, as much as you can set boundaries that will not get you fired and, and make your <laughs> life easier, whether that is, you know, making clear when you will or will not be contacted, whether that's I, um, I'm not, I would never personally do this, yeah. but, you know, blocking out your calendar in such a way where it maybe looks like you're busy, um, and you are busy. Yes, you are busy. Um, but, you know, being creative with the tools that we have under our own control to be able to do the things that we need to do for our families yeah. is something that I often advise. Um, don't get caught. <laughs> but certainly, like, you know, yeah. a little subterfuge. Yeah. Uh, never hurt anybody. Yeah. Um, so, you know. And it's like, yeah, block your calendar. Work. It's like housework. I'm doing the fucking dishes that have been piling up in my sink for three days. Like, that counts. Um, but what's... I I fully appreciate the group thing because, you know, I was an executive in advertising. And I would sit there and be like, why can't I help change this? Like, I'm supposed to be able to. Like, I'm a C-suite executive at a company. Like... I have a say. So, you know, when I sit here and I'm contemplating why things are so painful or why it feels so difficult coming, you know, back to work and having little children and being in this industry, it cannot be done by one person because as much as that one person takes on the mantle of being um, the annoying one who's constantly harping on about these issues, unless you have buy-in in a much grander way, one person cannot change things. And so if we think about like the Me Too movement when it came into the ad industry, um, yes, there were flaws to that, and I'm probably dating myself by even using this reference, but all of a sudden, like, we did see a decrease in explicit sexual harassment. Like, there truly was, because all of a sudden, a few people were held accountable, a ton of us banded together to be like, yeah, no more. Um, same thing with the 3% conference, which was a conference to get more women into creative roles in the industry. Those things were impactful because everyone got impassioned about a singular task right. and went for it. And so that's a really good piece of advice that I've never thought of is, actually, let's get as many people in this industry together. Yes to brainstorm, because we're really good at it, um, solutions to how to make work less greedy and to reframe what it means to be the ideal workers. And I do think, you know, again, I think there's so many things that men can do that they are not doing because uh, either they are afraid to because they will get punished more than women. It is sort of a double-edged sword in that female workers are expected to take more time um, when they have kids. Yeah. And so they're punished for not doing that, but it is more acceptable to ask for flexible work to mm -hmm. sort of get, uh, I don't want to call them entitlements, uh, whatever you want to call yeah. it, to help you, you know, manage mm -hmm. your life. Um, but, you know, I've interviewed many men who have, say, there's, you know, there's paternity leave on the books. Yes. There's six months paternity leave on the books, but nobody takes it. Yes, because absolutely. Because if you take all of it, you will absolutely be punished and seen as, you know, not fully dedicated. And yeah. so, you know, in a situation like that, a man in upper management, upper, upper management, yeah. needs to showily take the full six months. Yes. That is the only way to change it because mm -hmm. it, that sort of messaging 
comes from the top about what is appropriate and what is expected. Yeah. And so again, it's like, you know, we only have so much power to change systems that we're not at the top of. Yeah. And so I think that's a place where men who do have power need to say like, okay, I'm going to actually do this and make sure everybody knows that I'm doing it yeah. explicitly. Yeah. And, you know, the um, chairman of Advertising Week posted something on LinkedIn the other week um, just in preparation for the event. And he said, you know, something I've said a, a few times too is like, we have access to huge amounts of money and huge megaphones working in this industry. And so, you know, even if the one executive at the tippy-tippy top of a holding company in this industry sets the precedent of taking leave, we have other venues to also create conversation and change. So maybe, you know, whoever gets the next brief for, what is it, Hymns or, you know, Harry's yep. or Dollar Shave Club, like whoever gets that brief is there a way to utilize that brief to actually have an important conversation? Because we are all in this industry, I hope and I believe, because something in us wants to shift conversation, not just because we want to sell whatever product we are working on. And so this is the, the approach I took for the last five years of my career is like every brief I was like, okay, how can we solve world hunger? Okay, how can we solve like the motherhood penalty? How can we solve that nobody knows anything about breastfeeding? Because we can. And so that's one thing I would encourage everyone to do, like every brief, like, okay, if it's a banner brief, maybe less so, but like every big meaty brief you have, just ask yourself, what are the big things we are trying to tackle as a society and is there a way to help move the conversation or add nuance to the conversation through this work? Yeah, it's a great point. Um, so Jess, you kind of started more centered on parenthood um, and then during COVID, I feel like you were the go-to. I mean, I, I, Jess Gross saw me through COVID. Like I, it truly, I read everything she wrote and I was like, and one time you put out a call for, like, uh, new moms during COVID. I don't know if I – we haven't talked about this. No. And um, I had just had my baby in May of 2020, and you were like, how are moms who just had babies during COVID feeling? And you put out a call, and I DM'd you, and you wrote back the most, like – comforting Aww, message. I'm so glad like she, I did she's that. She's a good person. No, a zero, it's, to a total stranger. I will say that <laughs> that entire spring is just memory holes. I oh, I have no clue. remember anything that happened. You could tell me that I like ran a marathon. I'd be like, sure, I did. I guess that happened. So I'm glad that I did. Yes, that. you did. You did. And <laughs> you were doing so much. So it's no wonder you have no like cognitive capacity yeah. to remember anything. Um, but you also are expanding beyond just the realm of parenting to actually think about what is happening in the world outside of just the parental lens. And, you know, I think so many of us are, it's a bit of a mind fuck to even be in this sort of environment and be having conversations that are so commercially driven when there's a literal genocide happening. Um, and people are, innocent people are losing lives in multiple places in the world. And how do you think we can start to bridge 
the conversations of work with how to actually work in a world in which we are constantly confronted with these deeply human catastrophes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, if I had a real answer for this, like, I would win a Nobel Prize, but, like, <laughs> I, I'll give you, like, my sort of small ways of, of dealing with it personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at, at some point we need to compartmentalize our consumption of news, um, our consumption of, you know, information that may not all be good information mm-hmm. and have really, as best we can, healthy boundaries around uh, the role of information in our lives. So there are terrible things going on in the world all the time, and that is a truism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that the, and by compartmentalize, I don't mean like blithely shutting it out and be like, whatever, that's not about my life. Like, no, that's mm-hmm. not what I mean. I mean, like, we cannot um, show up for the people in our own lives or help you yeah. know, humanitarian crises if we're, you know, doom scrolling. Yeah. Our whole, I mean, yeah. I I have suffered from this the past week or two. It's just been a night terrible. Yeah. Um, so I would say like healthy boundaries around the information that you were receiving, mm-hmm. but it's also, you know, we all have different skills. We all have different um, identities and how we're showing up and who we're yeah. showing up for. And I think it's thinking really hard um, about who you are and what you personally can best do to help in any given situation. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think um, it's, we all have different knowledge bases and can bring different things to different problems. Yeah, and so yeah. I think it's just thinking really hard about what you, you personally can do to help in yeah. any kind of given situation. And I think there's like, there's almost two ways in my brain at least to address these sort of moments. One is helping and I will always, I, we should all default to action when we can and when we feel equipped and educated enough to do so. But it's not just about help, it's also about healing. And, you know, we are going through a lot as a society. And, you know, yes, on a grand global scale, but also, you know, people are losing loved ones. Like, people are, you know, going through a lot of mental health issues. You know, like, women in the workforce have two times more PTSD, stress, anxiety disorders than men. And I just think we also need to be able to fully acknowledge that we are sentient beings Well, (laughs) in the workforce in the sense that, like, you know, you can say, I need a mental health day. This crisis is really affecting me and it needs to be okay. Or you need to be able to go to a client and say, hey, we need a few more days. People are having a really rough time. Like, we all need a day to just take off and, and breathe or talk to our families or grieve or whatever it is. Because just carrying on is actually not doing anybody any favors. So it's okay to say, I need a second. Well, I do think um, that is one of the lessons that we did not all learn from COVID, which uh, is, I mean, I do think that we've had a bunch of changes and like, I do think flexible work is now ascendant. Um, My, uh, the opinion section, which is what I work for, just ran a piece this week where like the five day in office work week is dead. It is not coming back. Like, you know, stop Mm -hmm. playing, (laughs) which I think is probably correct. Stop playing. But I do think 
at the same time, I see a lot of um, lack of acknowledgement about what everybody just lives through. So, you know, I cover often uh, mental health, especially among children and teenagers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been tons of information that the mental health of teenagers was not great in 2021 mm -hmm. and all of this panic. And it's like, wouldn't it be weirder if their mental health was good in 2021? Yeah. Do we all remember what was happening? Which is not to say it is not serious and we shouldn't address it. But I think some of the outsized reaction feels very strange to me because it's like, did we not all just live through this yeah. thing? Like, it's normal. It's not something we should pathologize necessarily right. that they are reacting to their whole lives changing overnight in a very frightening way. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would like, I think it would be healthy for everyone to acknowledge that like, you know, so many people in that scenario lost family members and were oh, terrified yeah. and got incredibly sick. And it's like, I think that there is some segment that is just, you know, well, we're back to business as exactly. usual. Everything is the same. And it's like, that weathered a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so I think one of the lessons that I would love to have all of us learn mm -hmm. is that, you know, we are human. Yeah. That was a deeply human moment that I don't think anyone was not touched yeah. by it in the entire world. And right. so, yeah, um, I think that's one lesson that we should do a little bit more yeah. work in taking away. Yeah. It will never be back to business as usual. <laughs> like, we, it cannot ever be back to business as usual because if we walk away from a global pandemic having not learned enough to change the things that were causing us pain or causing us like these deep feelings of isolation and suffering and depression and we learned how broken the healthcare system is like if we are back to business as usual that in and of itself is a failure of humanity. And so I think we can utilize these horrific moments in the world to actually critically think about how things need to get better. And even if you're even if you're enforcing or reinforcing it on a micro scale, like being like, I need a day off to process what is happening in the world, that says something to people. And not saying like, oh, I caught a stomach bug or like, oh, I have to take my dog to the vet. Like, don't lie about it. We don't need to make excuses anymore. This is enough of an excuse because the biggest thing that we need to do right now as a generation, which I'm assuming many of us are part of the same generation, give or take, is revolutionize what work looks like in a way that is more human. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> we have 25 seconds left. <laughs> well, in, in the last 25 seconds, everyone buy this book. Oh, thank this you. This is Jess's book, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. She is, yeah, I mean, I don't want to embarrass you on stage, but she's uh, one of the most impactful thinkers of our time. Oh, so, Jesus. I wouldn't say that, but yes, I appreciate it. Yes. And I want to thank her for being here with us at Advertising Week. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for coming. Yeah.